Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. invite you, if you have a Bible this morning, to turn to Psalm 121. We began last week a new sermon series through these Psalms of Ascent. I challenged you last week to perhaps pick one or a couple of these to memorize, to challenge your family, to challenge your small group to memorize. And Psalm 121 is the one that my family has chosen, so we're Slowly working our way through this, and I think you'll you'll see why. This would be a good one by the end. Psalm 121. It was June of 2001 when Time magazine featured a remarkably unique cover story. In fact, the story, it would go on to become one of the top ten stories of that year. It was the story of Eric Weyenmayer. Wyan Mayer, a celebrated athlete and mountaineer, became one of only about 4,000 people to ever reach the summit of Mount Everest. In fact, interestingly, Eric is one of 118 people in history who have reached the top of all seven of the world's highest summits. Only 118 people have done that. As I'm sure you're aware, summoning Everest is no easy feat. It is no small task. In fact, it is said to be one of the greatest physical challenges on the planet. Many climbers don't make it. Many die trying to reach the summit every year. Their bodies left there, unable to be retrieved. But on May the 24th of 2001, probably about the time as I was making my trek across my high school graduation stage, Eric Weyenmayer with a 10,000-foot vertical fall into Tibet on one side and a 7,000-foot fall into Nepal on the other, Eric stood on the summit of the tallest mountain on the planet, the highest point on planet Earth. But what is so remarkable about this story isn't that Weyenmayer summited Everest. I mean, that's remarkable in and of itself. But what is so remarkable about this story, what's so amazing and unique, is that he did so while being completely blind. Eric was born with a rare eye disease, which began deteriorating at a young age, leaving him completely blind by the age of 13. And yet, despite his blindness, he did in fact manage to reach the summit. The author of the Time Magazine article writes this, The blind thrive on patterns. Stairs being relatively all the same height, city blocks roughly the same length, curbs approximately the same depth, they learn to identify the patterns in their environment much more than the sighted population do, and to rely on them to plot their way through the world. But on Everest, the trail through the Himalayan glacier is patternless, a diabolically cruel obstacle course for a blind person. 
It changes every year as the river of ice shifts, but it is always made up of treacherously crumbly stretches of ice and terrain, ladders roped together over wide crevasses that must be jumped by the climber, avalanches, and most frustrating of all for a blind person, a totally random ice scape. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, how is that even possible? How is it even possible that a blind man managed, despite all of the serious dangers and difficulties and unknown terrain, how, does it, how did he manage to reach the summit of the world's highest mountain? And the answer is because he didn't do it alone. He wasn't alone. In fact, what's often overlooked in this story is that not only did Eric manage to reach the summit, but so did his entire 18-member team with him. In fact, it was more than any other single expedition team in history. The article goes on to say, it could be called the most successful Everest expedition of all time. At this altitude, he writes, Eric must rely on his teammates to guide him. They would keep ringing the bell attached to their packs, shouting voice commands to him up the mountain as he felt his way to the top. It is truly, truly a remarkable story of the greatest team climb in history. He wasn't alone. He had help. And despite his blindness, someone was watching him every step of the way. And brothers and sisters, I, I can't help but think that Eric's story is actually a perfect metaphor for the Christian life. It's, it's a perfect picture of the Christian life. But the Christian life is also a dangerous journey. It is a difficult and dark trek through unstable rocky terrain as we are making our own journey through life, as, as Pilgrim was in Pilgrim's progress on his way to the celestial city where oftentimes we too are blind and oftentimes we are unable to see what lies ahead. We're uncertain of the dangerous path before us. And as we come this morning to Psalm 121, we discover here that the psalmist also finds himself on a difficult journey. He, he finds himself making here a dangerous climb, and he needs help. And he isn't alone. Last week, if you remember, we learned that the Psalms of Ascent, notice beginning here in Psalm 120 and going and concluding all the way in Psalm 134, were a kind of ancient road trip playlist. They were a kind of playlist comprised of 15 songs that the Israelites would sing together as they would ascend and they would journey up to the city of Jerusalem, making their way there for the various annually prescribed feasts and festivals for God's people. And in Psalm 121, the psalmist finds himself here on a journey up the mountain to Jerusalem. And he too is in desperate need of help. He can't do it alone. In fact, notice there in verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? He recognizes he's in need. He can't make this journey alone and he needs help. 
There are dangers ahead. And so what does he do? Well, in his great need, in verse 2, notice, he looks upward to the Lord. My help comes from the Lord. And church, I believe that this is exactly what the psalmist would have us do in our times of great need. That we would turn our eyes to him and that we might know he is our helper and our keeper and he is watching us every step of the way. Let's look at it together. Psalm 121, if you have your place there, please stand with me as we honor together the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1, the psalmist writes, A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, Psalm 121 is perhaps one of the best known, best loved songs in the Psalter. It, it has been particularly meaningful for saints throughout the centuries, particularly during the most difficult times and seasons of life. I mean, there are countless who have found great comfort from this psalm because this psalm uniquely communicates God's sovereign, intimate, personal care. His sovereign, intimate, personal care. In fact, just notice that there is a single word that governs the entirety of this psalm. There's a repeated word that we see throughout this psalm, in fact, that is used six times, notice, in just the span of eight verses. Did you notice it? Now, that should clue us in right there to, to the overall purpose and meaning of this psalm. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. The emphasis of Psalm 121 is the keeping power of God. Keep. The word there used six times, it could also be translated as protect or to guard or to watch over. So this psalm then is all about God's divine power to watch over his own, to protect them, to keep them. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Protection by God and under the watchful eye of God is the dominant idea of this psalm. Yes, it is. Protection by God under the watchful eye of God. That's what this psalm is all about. 
But what also makes this psalm very unique is that this particular song, the psalmist wants to remind himself of these truths. That's what he's doing here. He's reminding himself of these truths, that the Lord is my keeper, that my help comes from the Lord. In fact, Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay helpfully points out this. He says, none of this psalm addresses God. Did you notice that? None of this psalm addresses God. The Lord is nowhere specifically addressed here in this particular psalm. That's very unique. He says then, all of it brings good news about God to the human listener. So in other words, this, this psalm here, the psalmist isn't speaking to God he is speaking to himself and to us about God. That's huge in understanding this psalm. So this psalm, beloved, is filled with good news for the human listener. And, and this morning, it is meant to provide great comfort and strength for weary pilgrims. This, this is a pilgrim song. Songs to sing for the weary pilgrim as we too are making our own dangerous journey toward Zion, toward the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And so, beloved, whatever difficulties and trials you may be walking through right now, whatever dark paths you may find yourself on at this particular moment, hear Psalm 121 say to you this morning, the Lord is my keeper. This psalm breaks down nicely into two distinct parts. I want you to notice two things. Number one, the psalmist's question in verses one and two. And then second, the psalmist's assurance in verses three to eight. So the psalmist's question and the psalmist's assurance. First, notice his question in verses one and two. Verse one, notice it begins again with that superscription, a song of ascents. Song of Ascent. So immediately then we are reminded here that the pilgrim is on a journey. He's, he's making his way. He is ascending to the city of Jerusalem. And as he does so, notice that the hills that surround this city now come into view. As I said, the, the city of Jerusalem, it sits elevated up in the hills and it sits surrounded by mountains. In fact, if you look over in Psalm 125, verse 2, we read, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. So the psalmist, he is ascending here to Jerusalem. And so in verse 1, he says, notice, I lift up my eyes to the hills. So he's looking up to the city. And he sees the hills, and as he does so, then he asks himself a question. Verse 1. Notice this question. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? So he sees the hills, and it prompts him now to ask this question. Where does my help come from? Now, scholars are divided here as to the exact meaning of these hills. Because there's really two ways of interpreting verses 1 and 2. Here's, here's what I mean. Is, is the pilgrim here filled 
with anticipation or anxiety for what awaits him? Uh, as, as he looks to the hills, is he filled with anticipation or is he filled with anxiety? Do you see the difficulty? In other words, the psalmist, he could be identifying the hills as the source of his help. It's, it's the place where he finds his help. Because after all, the city of Jerusalem is seated in the hills. And there in the, the center of the city is the temple of the Lord. Where the Lord's presence would dwell amongst, among his people. And so the psalmist, he could be saying, the hills are where I find my help. So I'm, I'm looking toward Jerusalem, I'm looking toward the temple, I'm looking to the hills because that's where my help is. That's one way of interpreting verse 1. But there's another way, a second way, and it's the way I think we should understand this verse contextually, is that the psalmist understands the hills as the reason why he needs help. The hills are why he needs help. In other words, instead of being filled with anticipation, the psalmist here is filled with anxiety. He's filled with worry. He's filled with concern as these hills now come into view. Now, why? Well, this is difficult, I think, for us to grasp who, when traveling, we simply get into a car and we lock the doors and we go, right? We check into the hotel room slide the little lock, and we're good, right? But these travelers making their way to Jerusalem would have been on foot. Perhaps they would have been sleeping out at night in the elements. And so in verse 1, the hills actually represent a place of danger. They're treacherous. They're hazardous. They're threatening with unpredictable weather, weather patterns and hiding places for thieves and robbers taking advantage of these pilgrims and even hunting grounds for wild animals. And so, in fact, notice the pilgrim, and now as he gazes at these hills, he's mindful of the danger they represent on his journey. In fact, look there in verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. So he's on rocky, uneven terrain. Threats are all around him. And so he asks himself this question here in verse 1, from where will my help come? He senses his need for help as he looks to the hills. So this help, it relates to his protection. He, he recognizes he needs help, but then... Verse 2, notice he immediately answers his own question with assurance and confidence. Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So this the pilgrim knows. He can trust God. The same God who made the heavens and the earth, this, this same God, this same creator God, is the one who he can trust to help him in the midst of danger. Now again, we don't know exactly what dangers the psalmist is going through. All we know is that he's speaking here of these hills metaphorically. And he acknowledges that as he surveys his life, 
as, as he passes through challenges, as he passes through difficulties and dangers and trials, and, and, and he asks himself, from where does my help come? And perhaps, I can't help but think that you have asked that same question. It's quite possible that you have been asking that question for a long, long time. In fact, it's entirely possible that you're sitting there today and that same question is running through your mind right now. From where will my help come? And so we have the psalmist's question in verse 1, but then look more closely now at his answer in verse 2. Where does his help come from? Verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So notice here the psalmist now draws our attention to two things about the source of his help. Two things about the source of his help. Notice first, he is the Lord. He is the Lord. My help comes from the Lord. Now again, we saw it last week in Psalm 120. Notice that name there is is in all caps. Capital L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh. This is the Lord. When Moses asks the Lord, and the Lord speaks to him out of the burning bush, and he asks him, who do I say has sent me? The Lord said, tell them, tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you, the Lord, Yahweh. And this name, it signifies that he's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He's the very same God who delivered And redeemed his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he will keep all of his promises to Israel. He's going to keep all of his promises to his people. He is the Lord. But notice the second thing about the source of his help in verse 2. He is not only the Lord, he's also the creator. He's the creator. Verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So he draws our attention now to God as creator. Now why? Why do you suppose he wants to draw our attention to this? In the midst of his difficulties in life and the trials and the dangers surrounding him, why does he want to remind us that his help comes from the creator? Here's a simple answer. Because he's acknowledging here that the very same power that brought into existence the entire cosmos, the heavens and the earth, the very same power that created all of these things, that very same power is my help. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says, The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He spoke the world into existence and he created something out of nothing by the power of his word. Psalm 1 and 4 verse 32 says, This same God looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. Mount St. Helen, Mount Vesuvius, he touches it, it smokes. Psalm 147, verse 4, this creator God determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their name. 
Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Hebrews 1, 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Beloved, God's work as creator, it declares his infinite power. And here's what the psalmist must never lose sight of. Here's what he must remind himself of. Here's what he needs to know that that same power that created all things and spoke the universe into existence is my help. So this is the psalmist's question and his answer. Where does my help come from? From the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. But then... Notice in verses 3 to 8, notice that there is now a dramatic shift that happens. And what the psalmist does now in verses 3 to 8 is he wants to now turn and convince himself of this truth, of this reality, of what he's just said in verse 2. So in other words, what he's doing here is he's reassuring himself. Second. Point number two, the psalmist's assurance. Verses three to eight. Notice, notice in verse three, a dramatic shift takes place. How so? Well, because up to this point, in verses one and two, the psalmist has been speaking in the first person. He's been speaking in the first person. Notice it in verse one. I... Lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Verse 2. My help comes from the Lord. So he's speaking in the first person. Do you see that? I. My. But beginning in verse 3, there's a shift. And he's no longer now speaking in the first person. But now he begins speaking in the second person. So he moves from first person now to second person. Look there, verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day. Verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Do you see it? So who is he speaking to? And who is doing the speaking? I told you last week, this is very important in order to understand and interpret the Psalms. Now, it's entirely possible that when the psalmist originally penned this psalm, he was anticipating that this psalm would be sung responsively. So, you know, we do this on occasion where we read responsively. And so perhaps these travelers, as they're making their way here, they would sing verses 1 and 2. And then perhaps an individual or a priest or someone else would respond by singing verses 3 to 8. That's entirely possible. However, it doesn't change his experience here. No, he intentionally makes this grammatical shift in verse 3 from the first person to the second person. Now, why? Here's why, I think. Verses 3 to 8, this is crucial, I think, for understanding and applying this psalm. In verses 3 to 8, the psalmist is now trying to convince himself of what he just declared in verse 2. So he, it isn't enough 
just to factually know it. The Lord is my help. No. The psalmist now wants to convince himself of that reality. So in essence, it's as if the psalmist is turning to himself and he's saying, you. It's like he's looking into a mirror. He's pointing the finger at himself and he's saying, you. You. Do do you understand what you have just said? Do you really, really believe that? Do you really grasp what you have just professed? Do you really live in the light of that reality? That my help comes from the Lord. He's trying to convince himself in verses 3 to 8. Again, James Montgomery Boyce comments here, it is probably best to think of this as an internal dialogue of the psalmist with himself. And so the psalmist, as he peers into his own soul, he's engaged in this internal dialogue, this internal conflict, you might say, where he sees the hills and they are menacing, they are are treacherous, and and he states what he knows to be true in verse 2, theologically, intellectually, my help comes from the Lord. And now here in verses 3 to 8, he's asking himself, do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? Do, do, you, do you really live like that when you find yourself in the midst of the hills that the Lord is your help? You know what the psalmist is doing here? He's preaching to himself. This is the very same thing we find the psalmist doing in Psalm 42, where he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. He's preaching to himself. Do you ever do that? Probably don't do it enough. Listen to what the doctor says. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes this. He says, quote will be up on the screen for you. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have those? You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. So what do you do? Lloyd-Jones says, you preach to yourself. You preach to yourself. And that's exactly what he's doing here in verses 3 to 8. He's preaching to himself. He's saying, do you believe this, soul? You stated it. Do you believe it? So let me, soul, remind you of what you know to be true and In verses 3 to 8, he approaches it from three different angles. Three reminders. Before we look at those reminders again, just notice there, though, in verses 3 to 8, they're held together by that word keep. Again, six times. Keep, meaning to preserve, to guard, to watch over, to protect. So here is how the Lord is his help. The Lord 
keeps me. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. So the dominant theme here is the Lord's watchful care. His infinite love and personal care for his people. So beloved, see yourself here this morning. So three angles from which the psalmist presses the truth of verse 2 home. First, reminder number one. Reminder number one, the Lord will keep you in all places. In all places. He reminds himself of this. Verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved, soul. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So, The psalmist here, he is reminding himself, he is preaching to himself that the Lord will keep him. The Lord will protect him. The Lord will watch over him in all places. His his watchful care is constant and it never ceases. That's what he's saying. And he reminds himself of this, notice, by reminding himself of something very, very important about the nature of God. Look there, verses 3 and 4. That he doesn't sleep. He says it twice. You notice? Verse 3, he who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He never sleeps. In other words, he's never distracted. He's never unaware He's never caught off guard. He's he's never taken by surprise. He doesn't nod off. He doesn't doze off. He doesn't take naps. No, he is ever wakeful. He is ever alert. He is ever watchful. No, he never slumbers or sleeps. I often remind my children of this as they're going to bed at night. Sometimes... Fearful, sometimes anxious. He never sleeps. Listen, one of the most humiliating, humble realities about our human nature, about our human condition, is that God has so wired us. He has so designed us that every 12 hours or so, we grow tired, our eyes get heavy, and we fall asleep and we lose complete consciousness to the world around us for an extended period of time. We are not in control. And yet, he never sleeps. Verse 4, verse 3, he who keeps you never sleeps. But verse 4, he who keeps Israel never sleeps. What is he doing there? Notice he moves from the personal to the corporate. From the individual to all Israel. Meaning, the one who keeps all Israel is your keeper. It's a greater to lesser argument he's making here. If If he guards and keeps all Israel all of his people, then how could he fail to guard and keep you? 
If he keeps Israel, he's going to keep you. And in verse 3, notice, he keeps you. Keeps. All those whom God calls, he keeps. You see, left to ourselves, brothers and sisters, we cannot keep ourselves. But here is the assurance that God will keep you. His, his, his elect, he keeps. So yes, we are commanded in the Bible to persevere, but we persevere only because first he has promised to keep and to preserve us. Jude 24 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Beloved, he keeps you. And he does so tirelessly. He will not slumber. So what's the implication then for the psalmist? We'll look there, verse 3. Therefore, he will not let your foot be moved. So as the psalmist here navigates the difficult, rocky, uneven terrain, and as you and I, brothers and sisters, as we navigate the, the difficult, harsh terrain of life, he, he is reminding himself God isn't sleeping. And he won't let my foot be moved. And this is what we must preach to ourselves every single day. And I think you can see why. I think you can see why we must preach this to ourselves daily. Because every pilgrim, I think, at times will need this reminder. They will need this assurance, particularly in the difficulties and trials and challenges of this journey. Because it, it might at times appear as if he's sleeping. That he doesn't care. And you're going to wonder, does God see? I mean, is, is he asleep? Are, are his eyes closed to my situation? Why does he seem indifferent? And even when we don't feel his care, the reality is that he is keeping you. And he is watching over you. That's reminder number one. The Lord will keep you in all places. Reminder number two. The Lord will keep you in all conditions. In all conditions. Look there, verses five and six. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Now, what is the theological reality that the psalmist wants to remind himself of here? And remind us of here. Here's what he's saying. In other words, he's saying, the Lord will never leave you. The Lord is always with you. Look there, verse 5. He is, he is your shade on your right hand. Meaning, he's like a shadow. That, you can't get rid of it. It's always... It's always with you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, he, he's always with you. He's always near you. It's like the shadow, right, on your right hand. He's there. He's with you. 
Calvin comments here, God is called our shade to teach us that it is not necessary for us to go far in seeking him, but that he's at hand. He's the shade on your right hand. He's with you. He's near you. And look at verse 6. He is protecting you. Verse 6. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Now, verse 6. Some take this very literally. That God will prevent you from sunstroke. You know, like heat stroke, which maybe some of us were close to a couple weeks ago. Right? Sunstroke. But verse 6 Notice, he will also protect you from moonstruck, which was a popular notion, actually, centuries ago, that the moon's rays could actually have a negative effect on you. That's, that's actually where we get our English word lunatic, lure, lunar, right? The moon will make you crazy. Now, the psalmist is simply affirming, God is always with me. Verse 6, whether it be sun or moon, whether it be day or night, that's what we call in the Bible a mirrorism. Mirrorism, meaning it, it's, it's two contrasting things referring to the whole, meaning it's everything in between. That's, it's the same thing when he says he, he's the maker of heaven and earth. It means everything. Everything in between. So whether it be during the day or it be during the night, whether I face dangers in the daytime that are seen or dangers at nighttime that are unseen 24-7, he's with me. I'm not so sure that social media has been a good thing for our generation. There's a whole lot of reasons I would say that. Um, but to have it constantly there with you 24-7. And here's why. I wonder if the constant barrage of breaking news, instant access to major headlines, tragedies, world events at one's fingertips all the time, I wonder if it has anything to do with what Seems to me, I'm no psychologist, I'm no doctor, the exponential growth of people struggling with anxiety. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. Reminder number three, finally. The Lord will keep you in all seasons. In all places, in all conditions, and in all seasons of life. Verse 7 and 8, look there, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, verse 7, we need, we need some clarity here. Because it, it could be very easy for us to misinterpret verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. Really? All evil? Because it doesn't always seem like that. It doesn't always feel like that, does it? Listen, the point, it isn't that we will escape all trials and sufferings. 
point is that we will be kept through them. Derek Kidner comments insightfully, in light of other scriptures, to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one. Psalm 23, he says, expects the dark valley, but can face it. Again, James Montgomery Boyce comments, the point of Psalm 121 is not that we will not have problems, but that God will keep us as we go through them. So, what then are we being kept for? How how are we being kept from all evil? In other words, he's keeping us, beloved, in the faith. He He is guarding us from ultimate evil, the ultimate evil of unbelief. The ultimate evil of falling away. The Lord, he's going to protect, he's going to preserve our faith. Listen, there is something far worse than any evil you may face in this life. The evil of losing a loved one, the evil of cancer, the evil of school shootings. There's something far more evil than that. And it's the ultimate evil of being cast out of the presence of God into an eternal hell. And in verse 7, he says, I will keep you. I will keep your life. Friend, do you realize that there are two eternal destinies staring you in the face right now. And you are but a breath away from entering one of them. There is life, there is death, there's heaven, there's hell, there's salvation, there's condemnation, there's good, there's evil. And where you end up is going to be based on this question, what do you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been to the cross? Have you been humbled and broken over your sin? Have you begged God for forgiveness on the basis of the substitutionary death of Christ for you in your place? Is your hope, is your assurance, is your faith fixed on the finished work of Christ? There's two eternal destinies. Eternal life, eternal death. Eternal good or eternal evil. And that's what the psalmist is speaking of here. He will keep me. He will keep my life. Which means, look verse 8, He will keep my going out and my coming in. I mean, there is just no limits to His divine care. Night or day, sun or moon, going out, coming in. When you, when you go to the workplace tomorrow, when you go to school Moms, when you wake up in the morning to care for kids, when you go out, when you come home at night from work, all times, all activities, all seasons of life, there is no moment in time where God isn't caring for you and keeping you and protecting you. What sweet assurance to be kept by God no matter. No matter our going out, no matter our coming in, The Lord will keep you. And then in verse 8, look, it all culminates here with this utterly astounding statement in verse 8. He says, from this time forth and forevermore. This time forth and forevermore. Meaning it starts now. It starts 
right now, this time forth, and it runs all the way into eternity, forever and forever and forevermore. He will keep me. And beloved, if this was the psalmist's view prior to the cross, then what about for you and I now after the cross? How much more in light of the cross? In fact, I I can't read Psalm 121 here and not think of Romans chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says there. Be up on the screen for you. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives this list, look there, shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Now listen, these were all realities that Paul had faced. He was very familiar with. But verse 37, look what he says, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able, able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing enters your life without his permission. Nothing apart from his good purposes. And nothing can separate you from his love in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And he will keep you. What comfort. That when evil abounds and the hills seem dangerous, he will keep you. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth and self. Listen up. You need to be reminded of this, that this sovereign, gracious, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, he calls people to himself, and those whom he calls, he keeps. And he will not only keep his church, he will not only keep his Israel, he will keep us in our entirety. He will also keep you, Christian, and thus the Lord the Lord will protect you from all evil. You will keep your life. And so let me close by just asking two questions by way of application. Two very simple questions, but I think two very important questions in light of this text. Here they are. Number one, do you pray? Do you pray? In verses 1 and 2, he recognizes his need for the Lord's help. Let me ask you, do you see your need? Do you see your need for help? And and do you pray when you find yourself in the midst of the hills, the the difficulties of life? Do, Do you recognize your need? And do you ask God for help? Do do you ask God for patience in your trials? Do you ask him for strength to resist sin and temptation in your trials? Because our trials will tempt us, won't they? To sin, to to unbelief, 
to doubt, to look for help elsewhere, escapism. Our, our trials will tempt us to do that. So do you ask him for help? Do you, who do you turn to? You ask him for grace to grow in the midst of them, to sanctify you, to, to purify you, to make you more like Christ. Do you ask him for faith to trust him? To wait on Him, to, to be satisfied in Him and in His timing, asking Him for, for grace to trust Him more, to trust Him that He's always working. He's doing 10,000 things you can't even see. He's always up to something. Do you, do you ask Him to give you faith? Not, not to save you from your trials, but to save you through your trials and to keep you, to hold you. Do you pray? Here's the second question. Do you preach? Do you preach? Verses 3 to 8, this is the psalmist's dilemma here. He has no difficulty believing verse 2 cognitively. In his mind, theologically. He knows who God is. No, his problem is living in light of that reality. And I dare say that's our problem most of the time. Yes, we, we affirm and we say God is sovereign. I mean, we, we are big about the sovereignty of God around here. But do you live like it? Do you live in that reality? Do, do, you, do you preach that, that sovereignty of God into your own soul daily, trying daily to convince yourself of the implications of that for your life. Because our struggles, beloved, oftentimes are related to two things. Our thoughts and our feelings. And one of the main reasons you need to be preaching to yourself every day is because our emotions often take over. Our thoughts often betray us. And your feelings will often lie to you. And they will blind you. They will blind you to objective truth and reality. And in those moments, you need to grab yourself by the ears. And you need to say, selfless and up. This is what I know to be true. That no matter how threatening the hills look, the Lord is my keeper. And he will keep my life. And he will guard me from all evil. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.